Make sure, make sure it's on for the right time. All right. You guys want some popcorn tonight? I'll yeah. get the bowls. All right. Of our last enjoyable, relaxing nights before school, guys. It's one of those lazy, hazy summer nights in St. Louis, but really, it could be anywhere in the United States. Twins Sean and Charlie, they're 10, and their brother Noah, he's seven. They're trying to soak it up while they can. Okay, I'll let you guys stay up a little bit later tonight, but that'll be it. Oh, you're pushing it. Nine o'clock. Who do you think you are, a 12-year-old? School's starting up again soon. And for families from St. Louis to San Antonio, there is a lot to talk about. So we obviously just found out that we are not going to be going back to in-person learning. Um, We're going to start our school year off virtually. And, of course, I have my own feelings about it as your mom and a teacher myself. But I kind of wanted to know what you guys were thinking. So, um, first of all, I guess I just... A good question would be to ask you, did you guys want to go back to school or I, did you want to stay home? I would like to go to school. It's easier. It's That's true. You stay at your own thing to do and you just stay there and you know you can expect what's next. Noah, how do you feel? I know second grade's kind of a cool year. Do you wish you were getting to go to second grade? Yes. What are you going to miss the most, staying home? I, I like seeing my teacher and my friends. Just, I like actually going to school battle. It needs, like you actually need it. Wait, kids wanting to go to school? Bet they wouldn't have said that a few months ago. <laughs> no, probably not. The thrill of an eternal vacation has definitely worn off. Um, and whenever we were in school, it was, oh, we were we would always joke around, like, I, I wish it was summer forever. And mm, sometimes I would do that, too. But I don't think everyone really wishes that it would be summer forever because it kind of was a bit after last year. And it was pretty stressful. And now that, and now that summer actually has come, it's still pretty stressful just trying to figure out how to do all this stuff. So I really think that no matter what we do, we really do need school just to keep us sane. (laughs) It turns out summer forever isn't so cool. The mother of these boys, Jennifer Sievers, is also an eighth grade English teacher. She tells us she could use a bit of sanity herself. I I want my kids to go to school more than anything. <laughs> Being home with them, trying to be a teacher to 100 different you know, um, children out there, and then the three that I have in my house in three different classes, it, it really, um, it was almost impossible. It, it's just such a tricky situation. What you, what's so much about this that is this mystery and this unknown, um, you know, it, it's scary. I think everybody just keeps hoping we'll go back to this, this place they call normal, and that's gone. There is no normal anymore. Even, even a year from now, what we had, you know, back last February, that, that type of school and that situation won't exist. I don't, I don't think so. Even with vaccines, I still think we're going to live in a little bit of a different world. And everybody keeps saying, well, what do you want? And I, I don't know what to say. And that's why I haven't really said because I, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. 
From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Today, kids and COVID-19, the pros and cons of going back to school. As August arrives, state officials, local health authorities, and school districts have, well, they've sent conflicting messages on whether schools will reopen. And I can tell you, as a mom of a school-aged kid myself, the uncertainty is quite stressful. But no matter what happens, it's still going to be, you know, scary. You fear your kid getting sick. You fear your child will bring the virus home. Or if schools stay closed, you fear that your child will fall behind. Virtual learning doesn't work for everyone. And of course, you worry about the social aspect, their friends, their social skills. And parents have been talking about all of this. And well, it's it's a lot. It's a pandemic. Everyone has their own individual circumstances. Um, you know, do both of us, my wife and I work absolutely. Would it be a challenge for one of us to have to stay at home and monitor them? Absolutely. Um, is is it something that we could make happen and do? Uh, definitely. But my biggest worry is, okay, we're going to do online. My son that's special needs has a 15 minute span of learning. We tried doing the uh, therapy, in-home therapy online and it it tanked. It did not work at all. My wife's an engineer. Uh, my my degree is in physiology and uh, and nuclear science, if you can believe that. Uh, so we were able to to teach some of these science and math material pretty easily for her. I can't imagine what other parents, especially working parents, had to be going through because it, it was a struggle just for us. The voices of Ryan Cotton, Christina Quintero, and Robert Turner, all parents, all in Houston all working through the fears and uncertainty of this moment. My children are feeling um, depression. My daughter told me the other, you know, a couple of weeks ago that um, she told me she had this heartbreak. And then I was trying to, man, she goes, Mom, I feel my heart heavy. I just feel sad. I don't want to do anything. I'm like, well, let's go, you know, outside. Let's play outside. Let's go swimming in your little pool or something. Mom, it sounds like fun, but I just, I don't want to do it. I don't feel like getting out of bed. And it took a while for me to understand, like, what was going on. And then it hit me that she was displaying, you know, signs of depression. <sighs> yeah. I've been there. That's that's tough to hear. I think for everyone, it's been, you know, a really tough summer so far and fall isn't going to be any easier. So as a bioscience and medicine reporter, I think to prepare for it, we need to understand more about this virus and how it impacts children. That's Dr. Lindsay Irvin. She runs Alamo Pediatrics in San Antonio, Texas. Since March, she's treated sick kids and counseled worried parents. A big part of her job, turns out, is to educate everyone she sees and to dispel myths. I see parents confused by misinformation, and I see them honestly trying to find their way for their families, something that's safe. So let's be honest, today almost everything seems political, including whether or not to open a school. 
and our once reliable institutions aren't really helping. Well, I used to have faith in the CDC. That's changed. So, so medicine was just sort of governed by science, and there was a lot of shame in not being signed grounded in science. I mean, that's how we were trained. Like, if you, if you veered off into your own opinion, it's like, what are you doing? Dr. Irvin is worried. She supports opening schools with science-based guidelines. She says it will benefit kids and their parents. But they've got to move forward safely. And we have to be sure that not only does their health not suffer, but that they have the family structure that they need to grow up. So now I have kids in my practice that are losing parents and grandparents. That is going to have a profound effect on their future. While most districts are now favoring virtual or hybrid models for those going back to school buildings, there are risks that need to be addressed. For starters, schools, daycares, and even kids themselves can act as, well, a Petri dish. So if you send your kid, your new baby to daycare, and over and over again, their body is slammed by adenovirus and metanumovirus and rhinovirus and different coronaviruses, which we see every year, influenza, they are going to have a lot of inflammation in their lungs by the end of the winter. According to Dr. Irvin, the cumulative effect of a bunch of different viruses plus COVID-19 is cause for concern. But many parents just don't know or don't think about that. While we can't know exactly what will happen with COVID-19 this winter, these concerns are valid. Children's lungs are delicate and that they need to be treated with respect because what we want is for the kids to have healthy lungs when they're 60, 70, 80 years old. So what we don't know is what the cumulative long-term effect is going to be of this virus on children's lungs. Let's meet the Gonzalez family. Dr. Irvin is the children's doctor. Well, um, my name is Edward, and uh, what do you call my wife's name is Ileana. We have two children, um, two-year-old and three-year-old. And uh, we all came down with uh, COVID. We all tested positive. All of them. Edward says they don't know how they got it. They were taking all of the precautions. It was early June. First Edward and then the kids and his wife all started to experience the symptoms of COVID-19. For myself personally, my biggest cause of concern was, of course, my health because um, I'm a recovering heart patient. I had a triple bypass three years ago. Uh, I'm also diabetic. So, of course, you know, my wife and I were very concerned about that, that, um, you know, if I was going to end up, you know, getting worse and going to the hospital, thank God I didn't. Fortunately, they all ended up having relatively mild cases. Um, kids seem to be fine, except now uh, we thought we're, they're fine. But now the youngest, Eduardo Jr., he uh, developed a rash over his torso, uh, really large looking blisters uh, kind of thing, and uh, took him to go see the pediatrician. And the pediatrician says it's a result of the COVID. Right. The rash. We've seen similar reactions to COVID-19 from kids. It's sometimes an indicator of multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But as far as Eduardo Jr. goes, his pediatrician has not yet given him an official diagnosis. But still, that rash remains a visible reminder of how little we actually know about this virus's long-term effects. So now we're kind of concerned. Uh as far as like 
what this could have caused because of, we've, we're reading that it's causing permanent damage to your circulatory system, like your heart, maybe even your lungs. And of course, that's another thing that has not yet been ruled out, the possibility of reinfection. They don't know how long the antibodies last, if they even get created, because they're finding now that some people make antibodies, some people don't. So I don't know, it's kind of like, um, it's a scary situation because you think like, okay, well, I had it already. So I'm like Captain America. I can go out there, do what I want to do, and I can get sick. So maybe, maybe not. So the Gonzaleses are still hunkered down for now. It's been really hard on the children. You know, they do notice it. They watch TV and they see a show. They see a kid in the park and they say, I want to go there. I want to go there. And I'm talking about just like a little park with swings. Nothing like Disneyland, you know, so it's hard to kind of explain to them that, hey, it's right now we can't. The good thing is that complications of in children from COVID-19 are very uncommon. Dr. Adrian Randolph is a critical care doctor at Boston Children's Hospital and the lead investigator on one of the largest studies to date on how children experience COVID-19. The Overcoming COVID-19 study tracked 800 patients between birth and age 25 at more than 35 children's hospitals. So let's get back to those myths we've been hearing. We can dispel a few more. So Dr. Randolph, I've heard some people say kids just don't get infected with the COVID virus, that they're they're basically immune. Is that true? Um, there is no um, clear data that children are um, less likely to become um, infected with the virus. I'm going to write this down. Okay. Not immune. Got it. Okay. Number two, there's this other idea that even if kids do get infected with a virus, they don't transmit it to other people. They're not contagious. Is that true? There's no reason to think that children don't transmit the virus um, because why wouldn't they? Okay, we'll write that down too. Children can transmit the virus to other people. Check. Got it. Okay. Now tell me something that is true about kids and COVID. So children in general can be very asymptomatic. Healthy children um you know, may have fevers and and a mild um, kind of viral type illness, and most of them don't get very sick. Um, a small number may get some lung disease like with the adults, but many of them don't even need oxygen. So great news. It seems so far that children really do do well with this virus, which Randolph says is one of the many ways COVID is different from the flu. Kids often suffer with the flu. It can be really hard on them. But most kids with COVID don't feel that sick. But some, as we briefly mentioned before, do get severe disease, usually weeks after they've been infected with COVID and the virus is no longer in their system. Now, this is very rare, but a couple weeks after they were infected, they may get a rash. Their eyes might get bloodshot. Their hands and feet might start to swell, and it's just kind of out of the blue. The ones who get this multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children or MIS or MISC, they um, 
they are mostly previously healthy kids and it's unclear, um, you know, who gets affected and why. And that is the scary thing, right? There's no way right now to predict which kids might be vulnerable to multisystem inflammatory syndrome. And these kids can get quite ill. Some have died. The majority of them will come up um, with a inflammatory response in their body that is overwhelming and affects multiple organs. And now I feel like I need to stress again that so far, it appears that multisystem inflammatory syndrome is extremely rare. CDC only reports those 342 cases I mentioned nationwide over the life of this pandemic so far. But this syndrome is serious, and it appears to be most common in populations that are also most likely to have families headed by frontline workers or go to schools that might struggle to take COVID safety precautions. The good thing is that with immune uh, modulatory treatments like steroids and intravenous immune globulin and other drugs like that, other things, therapies like that, these children, for the, the great, great majority of them, got out of the hospital, recovered, um, and we're following them up now to figure out if there's long-term consequences. So if COVID really is easy on children, why not just open up the schools? Why not just go for it? If they do get sick, they're not going to get that sick, right? But that doesn't mean that they can't, um, you know, if they get infected, that they can't uh, assist the spread of the virus, which is why you have to look at the community activity as well. And you still have to prevent them from spreading it so that they go home and then infect older people who then can get very sick and then go out in the community, work, other, you know, spread, it could spread very rapidly. Right. And before you know it, you have a community-wide outbreak on your hands. Dr. Randolph says that is why it's important to make sure the spread of the virus is under control in the community surrounding a school before just sort of swinging open the doors. Randolph says communities that are still dealing with surging COVID cases need to really think about shelving in-person schooling until their infections are under control. Everybody wants to open the schools. We, we, we want our kids in school, but it's all about the safety. And, and it has to be assessed on a case-by-case basis for each, each uh, area. And the, and, and the people as well have to be comfortable with the risk-benefit. And, and that as well for their own child and their own situation in their family. Right. So that's where each parent is right now, trying so hard to assess the risk versus the benefit of going to school. And they're trying to do it kind of on their own. Should you send your kids back to school? Do it online, do a hybrid model, create a pod type situation with other families? Oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> on this Saturday afternoon, four of Leticia Tapia's grandchildren just splash around in their two-foot swimming pool and squirt each other with water guns. It is by no means a bad time, but it is the most action they're likely to get this week. So what is the most part that you miss about the summer? 
about summer, the most thing I miss has to be Agora Camp because Monday through Friday, every, no, Monday through Friday, we would go on different trips. Like Monday, we would go, they would just take us to like a museum after we would eat lunch. Tuesday was, um, they take us out, they take us outside and they have a big, grassy yard they would take us out we would just play games outside all day wednesday was we would go fishing we would go fishing and we would go kayaking that's 11 year old jordan gomez uh, we had them doing their agora ministry uh homework leticia lives with her four grandkids her daughter husband sister-in-law in a four-bedroom house on the west side of san antonio the grandkids call her mom. Having her grandchildren at home because of the pandemic, instead of participating in their usual summer activities, comes with its own set of costs. It's expensive. They're constantly eating and eating and eating. And the electricity has gone up, you know, because they're just here. And the isolation, the isolation, <laughs> that takes a toll on kids too. Yeah, they're like I say, they're up all night, you know, they sleep till one, two o'clock in the afternoon, you know, and then, you know, back again, they get up and do the same thing, you know, and then being so hot and not being able to go nowhere, so they're just stuck in there. But even when they're on a better sleeping schedule and they're able to calm the cabin fever, the children still face obstacles. Leticia says distance learning, yeah, that wasn't great. Like I said, I'm not too technology smart. You know, I'm, I really, really, I don't even know how to really get into my cell phone, just like, you know, basic stuff, you know, but doing the Zoom and all that stuff and then confirmation numbers, it's kind of, it was kind of hard. Leticia was the primary person helping the kids with homework questions during the day while her husband and daughter worked. She helps them as much as she can, but sometimes so i said just get the calculator i told one of my grandkids and do your math they go no we're not gonna cheat i said then you sit there and count because there were like problems that i didn't i didn't understand this family is among the millions of families across the country who are trying so hard to figure out how they're going to make school work for them during the pandemic and there is just no right answer some people are creating their own micro schools, or now they're becoming better known as pandemic pods. So I'm seeing lots of creative creativity. I think, um, you know, people are just trying to figure out what's going to work best for their family um, and their children. Brianna Wood says she and her husband, Trey, are not ready to give up on public schools yet. She's one of the many parents in Austin and across the country who are opting to set up something like a pod for her seven-year-old daughter. So what that means is she's keeping her daughter enrolled in school, but teaming up with another parent to pay a certified teacher to meet with their children during the school day at their friend's house and help them manage distance learning and supplement class material with group activities. Before the family made a final decision on schooling, they talked to their pediatrician. You know, and she basically said, you know, at seven, Elliot's not really going to get what she needs um, at home or at school this year, because what she needs is the is the social emotional um, 
and and we definitely feel the same way. So our pod is sort of more of a hope that we can get the schoolwork done. We can all hang with our public schools so they can really safely reopen. And um, but the kids are engaged, um, their brains are engaged, and and my kids just happier when she has a structured environment and engagement. And I think we learned from last spring. She also just is going to learn much better from a teacher versus a family member. But pandemic pods are not cheap. So a retired teacher would reached out to about pricing, told her she was charging $40 an hour for a pod that's bigger than the one her daughter will be in, which only has a total of three students in it. One of them is her daughter's best friend, Devin. What was it like for you when you didn't go back to school in March and we had to do the rest of her first grade at home? Well, it was actually really boring, but at least I got to like be on iPad after school and it didn't take me like a while to like, once school's over, like walk to the thing, I could just be home. What are you thinking about how we're gonna try to do it with Devin this fall? I love that, cause like then it would be more fun since I don't have a brother. Like Devin does, so she could do it with him and like, at the same time, I have a brother, but he's still a baby. Yeah. So it's kind of lonely for you to do it by yourself. Yeah. It's more fun to learn with other people. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Because then you can work as a team. It's much more fun. So Brianna says her pod hasn't set a price yet on how much they'll be paying the teacher they've hired, but she says it will likely end up being more because her pod is smaller and she says she considers it an ethical obligation to make sure people can afford health insurance during a pandemic. This is certainly going to be an expense and we feel really privileged, um, you know, to be able to come up with the, with the money to do it. It's a bit of a gut punch, but we obviously feel like it's worth it. What happens to the kids who can't afford that? That right there is J.P.B. Gerald. He's a doctoral student at the City University of New York's Hunter College. His research focuses on the intersection of language, race, and whiteness in education. Gerald says the price tag of micro schools, pods, and the limitations of distance learning will likely end up leaving some students behind. Either they have to go to the building because they can't afford to be at home or their parent works or, you know, out of the house and they have to be there or something like that. Or they'll be at home and they're having the same situation they had this spring where they, we suspect, but we don't actually have the stats on it yet, people are really having trouble, um, you know, following along with lessons and so forth for kids, especially if kids have certain needs. It's just the awareness that the schools um, are in such a tough position. Yeah. So Brianna acknowledges that kind of disparity in the education system. She knows that parents and schools are faced with difficult, even impossible tasks. And this situation, unfortunately, is only going to greaten the divide um, in education that exists based on race and class and access. So one of the reasons that we did not pull the kids from public schools was to try to hang in there with them and, you know, keep the funding um, for when the schools open up. I don't know that we're doing anything to lessen the divide, but we're trying to be pretty conscious of not increasing um, the divide with our decision making. Um, But I think it's hard. Every family is just doing the best they can. Right. 
So parents with very little guidance are trying to get creative. They're trying to reimagine what school could look like. They're trying their best to figure out how to help their children meet their academic, social, and emotional needs while keeping their jobs and their homes and, oh, yes, not getting sick and not losing their minds. And let's face it, parents on any given day losing our minds seems like a very real possibility. So despite the warnings of public health officials and the hesitancy of some teachers and parents, a number of schools across the country are going to reopen for in-person classes this month or in September. Can schools reopen safely? And how will this rush to reopen schools impact local communities? Well, let's do what we do. Let's hop into the Wayback Machine and spend some time on one of my favorite subjects. Ask my friends. I bore them with it constantly. We're going to go back more than 100 years to when the world was in the grips of another deadly pandemic, the 1918 flu. But at the top of everyone's mind back then, at least at first, was not the flu. It was the Great War. A little over 102 years ago, uh, the world was at war uh, in a real way. Of course, this was a war like no one had ever seen before. It was a war that involved millions of men marching across the maps of Europe as well as around the world. And it was the first mechanized industrial war. So a, a complete new technology and also fearsome weapons like poison gas. So it was a terrible moment in human history. Kenneth C. Davis is an historian and author of the recent book, More Deadly Than War, The Hidden History of the Spanish Flu and the First World War. The 1918 flu pandemic, Spanish flu, remains one of the deadliest in world history. Uh, and this struck the world again while the fighting was going on and hundreds of thousands of soldiers are dying. But the war, the war was only a fraction of as deadly as the flu became. Um, modern estimates are between 50 and 100 million people worldwide died from the Spanish flu. The estimates of, in the United States are 675,000 people dying in a little more than a year's time. So it was, it was an extraordinary death, and it was twinned with, of course, the death and dying on the battlefields of Europe. And so far, COVID-19 has been more deadly for Americans than many wars. At the time we recorded this podcast, only World War II and the Civil War topped COVID-19 in the number of Americans killed, and it's not over. But some parts of the country, including the hardest hit areas like Florida and Texas, are continuing to push toward reopening. So how'd that go a century ago? They are exactly the debates we are, we've been having today about how much of the economy should shut down, what, what we sh should shut down, what should be left open. Imagine 
We're in the Wayback Machine, so we can imagine. Imagine you lived in New York City in 1918. Maybe, like me, you're a Broadway fan. Oh, look! No, no, really. Maybe you see Oh, Look, which opened in March of 1918. You might have heard this song. But at that time, in Kansas, a particularly nasty strain, a flu, appeared. On the morning of March 11th, the first patient appeared at the infirmary at Camp Funston in Fort Riley, Kansas. And by lunchtime, there were 100 patients. But this flu didn't make many civilians sick at that time, and it didn't really stick around for that long, at least in the United States. It, re- it receded a bit with summertime. People thought, well, it's flu season, it will end. Um, but then came back in September to the United States in a second wave that was even more deadly, more lethal, more violent, and, uh, and really not- like nothing doctors had seen before. In fact, some doctors worried that it was a new plague. Yes, it was bad, but it took doctors a while to really take it seriously. They said, oh, it's just the flu. It will go away. Uh, It's just the grip, which is another word for the flu, a common word for the flu back then. Uh, The health uh, commissioner in New York City famously said, oh, boys should just be careful about kissing girls through a handkerchief. Um, So it was it was really minimized at first. But then the enormity of the of the toll that it was taking and the fact that it was extremely violent death. Once it became clear this was extremely serious, how did the country respond? Different cities, because it was left to the cities, responded in different ways. Um, Some cities shut down their schools almost immediately and to great effect. Uh, St. Louis was famed for uh, its response to the pandemic. They had a very, they had seen what happened in some of the other Eastern cities as the flu was moving towards them. And they shut down, went into lockdown, as we would say it, trying to flatten the curve uh, much sooner than other cities did. And they were initially very successful and that included shutting down schools. So great, San Francisco followed suit. It's now considered another early success story in the war against that flu. But those cities reached a stage that you might recognize. Now, both San Francisco and St. Louis had flattened the curve, but they both opened too early. Again, really another really important lesson of 1918 for us today. They both opened too soon, and both cities had very, very big spikes. And once the spikes went up, it's much harder to go back. So there is a lot to learn from 1918, ask my friends. <laughs> but, but what's the big takeaway for schools? We are in the midst of reimagining a lot of things about society. And I think this is a point at which we're reimagining education in some respects.
so the idea of outdoor classes is a very realistic one, I think, in places that can do it. Can we safely have children taught in an outdoor environment, uh, certainly where the weather would permit it, that um, would be better for them? But is that really realistic? Well, it turns out this isn't a new debate. We don't think about the space around the school as being part of the learning environment, but that really is public land that should be used for the healthy development and education of our children and as a resource for the broader community. Sarah Milligan-Toffler is the executive director of the Children and Nature Network, a national network that pushes for children to have equitable access to nature. And she's been very busy. We work with uh, 20 mayors across the country in partnership with the National League of Cities. And we've been helping mayors to write their uh, COVID response plans and really help people understand how to connect to nature safely and you know parks and green space safely during this time. Okay, so before we jump into the science of COVID-19 and outdoor environments versus indoor environments, what about the science of outdoor spaces for learning? We do have some info on that. There are a number of studies that we point to that found positive shifts occur in in perseverance, problem solving, critical thinking, leadership, teamwork, and resilience in outdoor learning. Uh, They have also found that outdoor learning improves standardized test scores and graduation rates. Oh, I think outdoor classes would be great. I know as a kid, I would have loved to have had an outdoor class. (laughs) Monica Pierce-Charlton is the director of Infection Prevention for Children's Hospital of San Antonio. Um, I think there might be a few more distractions outside, you know, with depending on where your classroom is outside. But I think uh, outdoor classrooms, if they could swing, it would be a good idea. Right. So that's the thing. Outdoor classrooms sound fantastic, but it's not realistic everywhere. More distractions, of course. Bad weather, super hot here in Texas, gets cold in the winter in the north. It's, you know, a problem. And for some schools in urban settings, the outdoor setting is potentially unsafe. So for some schools, indoor classes are really the only in-person option. What will that need to look like? Well, some of the steps are going to sound really familiar. Making sure children have access to good uh, hand hygiene, whether it's washing their hands in the sink or also hand sanitizers. (laughs) How many times have we said this together? Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. What else? Yeah, so the CDC recommends children uh, two years and above to wear face coverings when they're out in public and they can't maintain that social distance. Right. So this is another red flag. Six foot distancing. Difficult, right? It won't be possible in every school either. And of course, masks and even those who can wear masks. Well, we already have grown adults throwing public temper tantrums over mask requirements getting children to maintain social distancing and wear masks, especially if their parents are among those throwing tantrums, will be difficult, to say the least. The use of an air purifier in a school setting could reduce contaminants in the air, which would include viruses. However, shouldn't be the only method that a school is using to protect kids from COVID-19. 
Okay, now we're getting into the expensive stuff when we already need to provide face coverings to students and put up plastic partitions, rearrange the classrooms, provide online options to students who can't come to school and add in an air purifier in every classroom. Yeah, that's a lot. Probably not going to happen. Open windows, they might be helpful. Um, still, you'd still have to have some kind of breeze coming through, I, I believe. Whether it, just one open window without a breeze may not be helpful. Um, but outdoor classroom, that's always an option. In fact, several studies have found much higher risk of COVID-19 spreading indoors versus outdoors. And if you read through the CDC guidelines for safe events and gatherings, the agency recommends outdoor gatherings over indoor gatherings. So does CDC consider outdoor classrooms an option? Back to Milligan Toffler. Unfortunately, I would have to say no. I haven't heard it as it's not part of the CDC recommendations, you know, uh, for, for reopening schools. And I haven't heard the naming of equipping outdoor spaces for students and teachers to come back to. Still, the president and education secretary, Betsy DeVos, have been insistent that public schools open fully in the fall with kids filling up classes. In a July tweet, the president said schools in Germany, Denmark, and Norway had all opened, no problem. So we thought we'd check in with someone in Germany, where it sounds like kids on the playground scream bloody murder just like American kids. But we wanted to see what's actually going on in Germany. Uh, well, my name is Esme Nicholson, and I'm a reporter for NPR based in Berlin, uh, in the Central Europe Bureau, uh, where I've been working for over a decade. Hello, Esme. So first, we should note that students in Germany are not in school right now, like their American counterparts. They're on summer break. But students did go back to school in May. Yes, absolutely. As, as, as the curve started to flatten uh, and states started to relax their lockdown measures, there was talk about, well, you know, if we're reopening businesses, uh, if we're reopening beer gardens, uh, we should be reopening the schools. But the, but the infection rate uh, was seen as low enough to, to get kids back to school, at least in reduced class sizes uh, on a part-time basis. Just part-time? Yes, and this was to allow for reduced class sizes, for hygiene reasons, but also to, to account for fewer teachers, uh, many of whom are at risk and have not returned to the classroom. But Germany never saw infection rates like we have in the United States. Even now, when they've seen a surge of infections recently, Germany has only had around 200,000 cases of COVID total and fewer than 10,000 deaths. So what's the difference in Germany? Well, for one thing, Germany lets its 400 municipal health authorities manage their own areas at the local level. And they have a robust system of testing and contact tracing. The health authorities, I... Uh, um have teams of tracers who uh, talk to anybody who uh, is listed as having had contact with somebody who has tested positive um, and stay in contact with them by phone and insist that they get tested. And if they uh, test positive, they are then quarantined. Um, and, and this happens on a local basis all over Germany. Uh, so I think the, the, 
the sort of detective work that is being done by Germany's contact tracers, uh, in many respects, they're considered the frontline workers here. And quarantines in Germany are serious. The local health authorities may quarantine an infected person or a whole block if there's an outbreak. And their quarantine orders have teeth. They are enforceable by law and you are breaking the law if you if you even go down, if you're living in an apartment block and you go down to your your mailbox to pick up the mail. Uh, it's, it's, it's considered too much of a risk. Uh, and we've seen entire apartment blocks uh, be quarantined here in the city in Berlin and elsewhere in Germany. Um, and I think that's not to be underestimated in, in, in fighting it. Esme says they did use this quarantine power when schools were open in the spring. So would any town in Germany consider opening schools if infection rates were still growing the way they are in several places across the U.S.? The short answer is no. Uh, The general policy in Germany is that lockdown measures are to be reintroduced, and that includes in schools, when there has been uh, when there have been more than fifty new confirmed cases per one hundred thousand citizens over a period of seven days, so uh, I think uh, you know, looking at the the numbers in the United States, there's no way that Germany w- would be reopening its schools. Germany does plan to open schools full time in September, though the plan has evolved since it was made and it will continue to evolve. Esme tells us Germany's teachers unions just said many schools are not ready to go back full time because of the numbers of at risk staff. So in Germany, at least, they didn't just open the schools and hope for the best in May. And they're not going to do that in September either. So I don't know if it helps to know that you're not alone, mom and dad, but parents around the world are trying to figure this out. So I've mentioned probably a time or two that I'm also a mom. So I'm right there in the trenches with you and I worry. I worry about my 15 year old's academic growth, sure, I worry about her emotional growth. I worry about depression. I worry she'll get COVID and it won't be the easy kind. I worry what all this will mean for her future. I worry that she's lonely. Heck, I know she's lonely. How? I asked her. Uh, Of course I'm lonely because I have no one to talk to. I only have my parents to talk to. And my parents are okay, but they don't care about my stuff very much because they're my parents. And it's like sometimes I'm just feeling really sad because I'm so lonely. She's headed into her sophomore year. And, you know, of course, she doesn't want to miss it. You know, part of high school is experience. And it's like parts of my life that I'm not going to get back. Like experiences like when we were doing football games and stuff and we aren't going to have those you know she's a good kid she says she understands she doesn't want to get sick she doesn't want her teachers to get sick or the cafeteria workers or the bus drivers she doesn't want anyone to get sick she doesn't want me to get sick but that doesn't mean she has to like any of this i think i'm probably just going to be sad about it for a while and 
that's just how it's going to be. And I can't really fix that. I just have to be sad about it. That, that shatters me. So, I worry. You know, I also worry about kids stuck at home in less than ideal circumstances. I worry they won't be hurt by the disease. I worry they'll be hurt gravely by the people who are supposed to protect them. And I worry so very much for the parents who don't have any good choices because they have limited resources. It's not fair. Yes, yes, I know. Life is not fair. I heard that a lot growing up. I wasn't cool with it then, and I'm not cool with it now, and it makes me worry. There is one thing that has helped me though, and maybe it'll help you too. It's acceptance. We're having a pandemic, y'all, and the only way to get through it is to go through it. I've actually stopped caring about how my daughter does on standardized tests or what universities might think about her extracurriculars or her SATs or any of that stuff that used to keep me up at night. It just doesn't matter anymore. I don't think any of that stuff is gonna matter to anyone when all of this is over. This is a moment in history and very few of the things that used to matter are gonna matter all that much as we move through it. So I honestly have become quite chill about the whole thing. Well, at least that part of it. So we need to focus on the ones who are at risk right now. Those who live in unsafe circumstances, those who don't have enough to eat, those who have special needs that are best addressed in a school setting. Those kids are the ones we need to reach and we need to help them access resources. The rest of us, the privileged who have choices, well, you're not gonna get any judgment from me whatever choices you make. We're all doing our best. You are doing your best, mom and dad. I see you. Grandma, grandpa, I know you're doing your best too. I'm doing my best. And you know what? That's enough. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Dominic Anthony Walsh and Michael Trevino with additional reporting this week from reporters Jolene Almendares, Lucy Wong, and Laura Isensey with Houston Public Media. Our sound engineer and designer is Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Our news director is Dan Katz. This podcast is a production of Texas Public Radio. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.